Hello and welcome to the Blockchain and Us, where pioneers and thought leaders talk about their journey in blockchain technology, crypto assets, and the token economy. And I'm your host, Manuel Staggers. This episode has support from my very own The Blockchain and Us newsletter. Get an email from me every two weeks with a very short summary of new podcast episodes so you can immediately pick those interviews you'd like to listen to. To stay up to date, just visit www.theblockchainandus.com and sign up today. My guest today is Ryan Yi. Ryan is an investment analyst at CoinFund, where he focuses on high-level research and constructing investment strategies. Before that, he completed his master's in financial math from MIT, where he also conducted research on crypto asset class economics with the MIT Digital Currency Initiative, and he holds a BA in economics and philosophy from Northwestern University. And now, to the conversation with Ryan Yi. Hi, Ryan, and many thanks for taking time today. Thank you for having me. Ryan, you're focusing deeply on research in the blockchain space, and you're working at CoinFund, which has some very interesting views on the roles of investors in the future in the blockchain space. And uh, But first, I'd like to speak a little bit about your research work. So what are you currently investigating? Sure. So a uh, little bit of background on myself. Um, you know, I I like to kind of you know research is a very broad topic, right? And especially in this crypto space, where where you can kind of research uh, many different assets and many different uh, kind of um, <clears throat> angles of these assets. So, I would say kind of my primary role at CoinFund is that you know because we're an investment firm uh, that invests in in kind of all life cycles of of assets and projects. Um, you know, one of our main businesses and, and focuses is early stage investment, right? So, um, you know, I, I'm usually kind of like the first line of defense uh, when projects come to us uh, for investment. Uh, you know, I kind of do diligence, uh, their product, uh, what are they building, um, what's the technology stack that they're considering. Um, and also on top of that, kind of the token model, uh, if there is a token model associated with the product um, and diligencing that. So. I would say that's kind of the primary focus of what I do uh, here at CoinFund. Um, I think sort of secondarily, uh, what I also focus on is is kind of what you touched upon at the beginning is uh, sort of this generalized mining initiative. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So I think there are, you know, especially for kind of, uh, you know, projects that already have liquid tokens or, or have tokens as, as part of their, um, as part of a, uh, uh, that play sort of an important role in the in the function of that product. Um, it becomes really interesting because if we kind of take the broader view that decentralized networks um, essentially are providing services, um, every network has different types of stakeholders and players, right? So you know if we want to take sort of the base case like Bitcoin for example, we have um, you know very simply we have Bitcoin miners. Uh, we have uh, full nodes, we have the users, um, we have investors who may also be users, and then we have exchanges uh, where you can you know, basically trade uh, Bitcoin for other crypto assets. And so, you know, the thing is that Bitcoin's, uh, you know, people are still having debates about what, what Bitcoin's uh, use case is eventually going to be. But you can already see that, uh, you know, in Bitcoin as sort of the first decentralized network at scale. 
um, you know, we have uh, kind of a diversified set of stakeholders. Now, you know, I think one thing that crypto has been doing, uh, which is, you know, pretty exciting is we are, we are kind of coming up with new design iterations of, you know, the validators uh, of these networks, uh, the incentives behind these networks, and how do you actually secure uh, some of these base layer protocols, right? So, you know, kind of the first shift uh, that's been kind of happening in mass, um, you know, in the second half of this year, and I think we'll continue to see into 2019, is to shift from hardware security models, so proof of work, into more capital-based security models, uh, which is more you know known as proof of stake. And so, as a fund uh, whose role is you know uh, capital allocators within these economies, uh, interestingly, you know it, it does enter kind of the domain space of not just uh, crypto funds and crypto investors, but also you know companies like uh, you know exchanges like Coinbase, uh, where a lot of uh, you know their their model is, is based around capital formation of these assets. Uh, and I think we're going to begin to see, uh, and I think we've already begun to see sort of staking as a service companies, uh, you know, where they're essentially, you know, kind of miners, but for the staking networks. Um, and then we see all sorts of ancillary financial services to support these things like lending markets and, and borrowing markets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think we're, we're still in the early innings. Um, and that's kind of a long winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I, I have a whole bunch of questions on generalized mining that I wanted to, uh, to uh, visit a little bit later. But let's first um, speak a little bit about how you're looking at some of the projects that CoinFund is investing. And then we'll visit generalized mining in you know, what will be the bulk of this conversation. Um, so basically, uh, when you look at new projects that you may or may not invest in, what's most important for you? Sure. So, you know, I think the first question I always ask is, um, you know, why blockchain or why decentralization? And there is no kind of like clear cut answer to that. I think it's kind of a case by case basis, especially, um, you know, to the type of product or service that's being offered. But, you know, usually the way, you know, one of, one of the easy answers that I, I'm, you know, relatively comfortable with is, you know, we can use decentralization, um, you know, for coordination. Kind of, if we think about the growth, the reason why um, sort of the the growth of public blockchains in general is the fact that anybody in the world could come and you know mine Bitcoin um, at a, at a certain point, right? Um, and I think um, if you wanted to extend that more formally, um, you know, with Ethereum uh, specifically, uh, I think Ethereum has kind of allowed for you know a, an entire universe of developers to come in and the community come around different types of standards um, and, uh, you know, sort of different uh, sort of concurrent uh, community guidelines and, and products that are kind of working together, right? So, you know, one of the early answers, uh, you know, that, that I always ask or, or questions, sorry, that I ask projects is why blockchain, right? What type of benefit actually comes from, you know, decentralizing this specific product or service um, and, you know, is it sort of coordination um, from a global supply level? Um, and also, is it uh, kind of at the developer base, uh, kind of a way to bring uh, global talent to the table as well? Mm-hmm. But right? those, are, those are all kind of asset tokens, right? Or utility tokens that you're speaking about? I mean, do you also get people pitching you security tokens, straight up investments? Right. So, so I think, um, 
So that's the second part of the question, right? So, uh, so the first part of the research process is, you know, why blockchain, why decentralization, and then sort of related to that is, you know, why token, and those are actually two very separate questions. So, you know, I think one of the things that we're seeing now is, you know, we have products that are, you know, building on top of Ethereum um, that are actually opting not to do uh, or introduce a token into their product. Right. So a lot of these decentralized finance projects like um, <clears throat> like Dharma, um, like Set Protocol, uh, DYDX, um, you know, you'll actually see that they don't take the view of trying to introduce a token, uh, mainly because they think uh, it's, it's actually a big friction uh, for users. And, you know, there may or may not be value accrual even when you, you know, introduce a token uh, into that mix. Right. So and then, you know, I think. After why token, um, <laughs> the next question is like, you know, how token, I guess, if you were, were to uh, kind of describe that, right? So um, how does that token actually uh, function within that economy? Um, you know, if, if there is adoption of your product, um, is there actual value accrual to the token? Um, and how kind of do you understand that as an investor and also as a project? So I think sort of one point that you touched upon with security tokens is, is exactly kind of early evidence um, as to why uh, that model can kind of be abused for their incentive services. So my, my main issue with uh, sort of security tokens, and I think one of the questions that people kind of have to ask is, you're essentially kind of uh, balancing for income, uh, income sheet risk and balance sheet risk. And here's what I mean, right? So. Um, the cool part about security tokens is that, you know, they essentially sell, you know, some securitized um, asset, uh, you know, which is uh, crypto native or crypto based. And it's supposed to, you know, give you rights to some portion of the income sheet, right? So whether that's revenues or, or that's profits or, you know, any, anywhere in between. Now, you know, the thing is that they can, whoever's issuing this can design it in any way that they want. Um, so they can, you know, provide, uh, they can basically guarantee very, uh, sort of high, uh, high percentage of, you know, let's say revenue, uh, to the token holders, or they can provide very low percentage of tokens, uh, sorry, uh, low percentage of whatever revenues to the token holders. And I think what we're seeing early on is that this kind of allows for a lot of financial engineering. Uh, which may or may not be in the best case uh, of the people at the table. So, so here's an example, right? So um, I think recently uh, I was pitched a uh, security token that would provide uh, 10% of uh, overall revenues to the product. Um, but the actual token, they were offering only 10% of the total supply uh, to the investors. Mm, got it. So what's interesting with that is, you know, I think most people would kind of look at, you know, most researchers would just look at it as, uh, you know, what's uh, a 10x, um, you know, in terms of like the revenue multiple. But in actuality, if you look at the asset that's being sold, it's more like 10% of 10%. All <laughs> right. 1%. <laughs> exactly. And so, <laughs> so, you know, that, that is a kind of more of a conversation around, you know, if you are, you know, sort of sharing it, um, not only at kind of like the income sheet level, but also what type of sort of balance sheet risk are you introducing? Um, and what's kind of the actual implied valuation? 
Now, I think I think uh, the, the models over time are going to become better. Um, and I think one of the sort of simple examples that I like to use as to why security tokens are going to have a market is, you know, imagine if uh, Uber had offered a security token that gave rights to the revenue. Now, that's actually very attractive because, um, you know, in the current equity model of Uber, I'm betting on their operations. Whereas, you know, if I got a security token that gave me rights to the revenue, I'm, I'm purely... Uh, taking a bet on Uber's growth, right? So those are actually two very different um, sort of value accruals and, you know, can introduce different types of uh, investors uh, that have maybe you know, different risk profiles, right? And so uh, I think over time, uh, some of these models will become better, uh, but I think sort of in the early innings, a lot of them suffer from the type of financial engineering that uh, that uh, we had just discussed about. Yeah, yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, I'd like to ask a follow-up question on that value accrual to the token. And especially I'm interested in the case of tokens that have a utility or are supposed to have a utility at some point in the future. How do you go about, in, you know, examining how value could possibly accrue to tokens like these? Yeah, so um, I think it kind of comes down to like, what is the, the you know, the term utility token, um, it means very different things for many different people. Um, and so I kind of, um, kind of shy away from using the word utility token, or at least when I use the word utility token, I think I'm purely using it as like a payment token. Mm. Right? What word so, do you use? What do you think is better? I use payment token uh, just because I think there are tokens that can, you know, be used within a product or service uh, that are not necessarily just, you know, purely uh, for paying for products and services, right? Um, so I think the way that I like to ask is, um, so so a couple things, right? So what exactly is the interaction between uh, the token and the product? And those can mean many different things, right? So uh, one of one model is, and I think we kind of saw this early on, was like the early altcoin rush, uh, which were basically just you know forks of the Bitcoin code, and a lot of that was um, you know things like you could pay tokens um, you know for the service provider, but you would have to use it within our specific token, and you can't use anything else. Now the the reason why that you know, didn't work for most of the time is, you know, obviously the volatility of the underlying crypto asset, but also what we're getting is, you know, sort of uh, different coins that people would maybe want to accept that have more stability and value, right? So, um, so one, one of the questions I, I often ask, um, you know, sort of these payment token people is, um, you know, in the world where stable coins, uh, you know, have a lot of volume, you know, as a service provider or as a person that's paying for the service, um, you know, what's my incentive to actually use your token, right? And so it becomes, um, you know, in, in the face of st stable coins, for example, maybe some of the use case or the, the demand for the underlying, um, you know, it's just simply payment token might go away. Now, that doesn't mean that there can be, you know, tokens that are used for payment services uh, that can, you know, potentially introduce incentives, right? So I think Binance coin is a great example of, of a coin that, that really kind of got it right in the sense that, you know, early on, a lot of the usage of, of BNB was for discounts, right? So if you were a power trader or a power user of Binance and, you know, you were making many trades per day and you were paying a lot in, in, in ex exchange transaction fees, 
actually, um, the, there became an incentive uh, at a point where you would actually train in BNB because you would offset a lot of that cost, right? And so I think early on, I think sort of the discount token use case uh, was sort sort of a, a a way where in which um, you know payment tokens uh, could be made uh, you know available, right? But that, but the thing is, I think we're still in the early days, um, and I think uh, sort of proof of stake tokens or staking tokens is is you know for better or for worse is going to be one of the trends that we're going to see because because I think um, at, at, and at least most models of staking tokens basically. Value accrual, it looks like something that most investors are used to. And, you know, staking tokens, if you do stake them, basically give you rights to two things, right? They give you rights to the underlying protocol inflation. Um, so, you know, let's, let's call that the block reward in most cases. And they also give you rights to any transaction fees that are generated on that network, which may or may not be in the underlying crypto asset. So, you know, if we were to take out kind of the first variable... Um, this almost kind of looks like a discounted cash flow analysis, right? If you kind of look at, okay, this is the number of transactions that I'm uh, expected to have on a certain network. Um, can we kind of backtrack that based on, you know, some kind of discount rate and come to a fair value of the asset if I do stake it today, right? And then, but then the part that it does, the part that kind of separates it from most traditional, uh, I guess, uh, discounted cash flow analyses is... Uh, the fact that there is like an underlying yield to the asset in inflation and, you know, how much that actually affects into price, I think, uh, is, is, is still to be determined. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. I just wanted to ask what kind of models and economic approaches, you know, you use to, to determine the value. I mean, you just mentioned DCF, but I think that's a tough one, right? Because it, it's very hard to come up with some cash flows if there are currently none. Right. So, so what what kind of models are you using then? Yeah, I mean, so you know, I the reason I brought up the DCF is more so around um, this idea of you know everyone's. I mean, the flaw with the DCF is that everybody can just plug in any number that they want and <laughs> and any discount rate. And actually, we're uh, I Come remember up with great numbers at the end. Exactly, and. Uh, I was in a conversation, I forget, with, with somebody um, and, you know, I think uh, they were like, hey, I use this discount rate to value this crypto asset. And this other person was valuing the same asset and used a different discount rate and they had come up with wildly different numbers for the price. Sure. Um, which is, I mean, yeah, which is interesting, right? But I mean, it, it kind of also comes down to like, what kind of vertical are you building in, right? So. So, for example, um, you know, smart contract platforms, uh, you know, tend to be kind of the one in which we're, we're beginning to see, you know, a little bit more competition. And so, you know, Ethereum obviously is the biggest one out there. Um, you know, I think with the launch of EOS and the launch of, uh, you know, Tezos and many of these other platforms like Cosmos and Polkadot, um, you know, if you do believe that one day some of these protocols can compete with Ethereum, you know, you have kind of a, a sense of, you know, what, what the market cap or, uh, you know, coin supply cap of Ethereum is today. And you can kind of backtrack it to give kind of a rough, rough estimation of what the market might value. So we have DCF, we have replacement value. What's another good one? I mean, the, I mean, there's like, uh, I mean, there's, there's many, uh, you know, so, so for example, the, um, like, so with the discount token model, It could be what are people willing to pay, um, you know, in terms of services 
Um, and then based on that, is there a certain threshold of discount that that user might want? And then through that, you can you know kind of backtrack into some sort of fundamental value of that underlying token. Right. So I think all this to say, these are just frameworks. Um, ultimately, it's a case by case um, kind of decision. Um, and also, it kind of depends on, on the vertical. Right. So you know, the truth is, not all, I, I would say, not one sort of asset is like the same as any other in crypto. Uh, there's always going to be differences. And, you know, I think one of the sort of early thoughts is there are also kind of like non-quantifiable metrics, right? Yeah, so exactly. with Ethereum today, I think, um, you know, some of the, some of the bull arguments are mainly around the community and, um, you know, our team, uh, all of us just went to DEF CON uh, recently in Prague. And I think just just being there and seeing this community uh, growing to what it is uh, versus when it you know kind of first uh, launched, uh, it's been kind of amazing to see grow, right? And so that's that's something that I don't know if you could put a dollar value on or maybe the network value on uh, currently. And I, there may be you know you kind of have to discount other smart contract platforms. Um, in the sense that they do have to build that sense of community over time yeah. uh, as well, right? Yeah, good point. Just this morning, I had a conversation about Metcalf's law with somebody. Um, the number, the square of the number of nodes connected in network is proportional to its value. Um, and and I was wondering, how do you account for this in a blockchain system? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, <laughs> that's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody has a good answer yet. <laughs> well, network effects. I mean, you also said it, right? It's so important to have a good community, to have many nodes in a network that support the network. And um, But still, right, there must be a value to it because one will be more valuable than the other. And and so I've just sometimes, I mean, I'm just wondering. Hope I'm not drilling too hard here, but just let no, me no, know no. have thoughts no. on that. And actually, this is kind of the... Um, I'm actually glad you bring this up because, you know, one of the things that we're seeing these days is, you know, like, uh, like I said earlier, we were, we're being used to see projects uh, that do not have tokens, right? And we're actually seeing projects that are building very similar products that have a token equivalent, right? So, um, you know, Bancor has Bancor token, but there's also a project that basically does what Bancor does, but without a token. Uh, so it's called Uniswap, uh, which recently launched. Um, and there's, you know, different, different projects, um, you know, also sort of competing with that. But that's interesting because I think one of the pro things about not having a token is, you know, obviously the user experience is, is much more better and you don't have to force, uh, you know, this token upon your users to actually have to go buy to interact with the product. But having said that, you know, the con is, I think it's tougher to kind of bring investors to the table. It's tougher to, you know, kind of get a community to come around a token that they could all buy and, you know, get, get kind of community support behind. And so, you know, that it kind of is, there's, there's kind of a delicate middle ground there uh, that I think eventually projects have to decide. Uh, because I think if you kind of skew too much focus on the token, um, you know, you may introduce, uh, you know, you might bring speculators to the table that may not actually be accretive to your product. Um, and then at the same time, you know, you might have a project that doesn't have a token um, and that is very easy to use, but, you know, there may not be a viable business model there, um, you know, to, to produce it long term. And so there's some in between there. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, um, but I can, I can bet that we're, we're going to begin to see kind of um, 
you know, products that are able to build um, around certain like token communities and then kind of extend from there. And I think um, one of my early theses is that I think a lot of these decentralized finance companies, uh, like I said, which don't have a token, uh, will eventually kind of, um, you know, come around, uh, you know, like the staple token for the DeFi community. So maybe like that's MakerDAO. Uh, and, and they're kind of like the um, kind of the central token for people to, you know, actually interact with DAI and use DAI as, as their stable coin um, of, of choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Well, I mean, let's uh, speak a little bit about generalized mining. And just before, I thought when you said some projects don't have tokens, for generalized mining, you need a token, right? I mean, that's the whole value proposition there, that yet there will be delegated proof of stake and you can somehow earn tokens by assuming several roles on, on the network. So you you already briefly described uh, in the in the uh, when you when you said what you're working on, what generalized mining is, but can you just summarize your definition of uh, of generalized mining? Sure. So um, I would say that uh, you know the way to look at it is there are many decentralized networks uh, today, right? And these decentralized networks need different types of participants. Um, whether that's on the supply side, on the demand side, on the investor side. And because each system is going to be different, the way that the value accrues to different types of people within those systems um, is going to be on a case-by-case basis. Um, And our view is that, and actually we've held this view for a very long time, is if you actually want to be a really good investor into some of these systems, um, you you can buy the token uh, or you can buy the crypto asset uh, but the other, t- but you buying the token is really an admission of you understand that economic system really well, or that decentralized network really well, and you believe that the value might accrue to the token, right? And so, but the thing is, that's not always the case. And sometimes, uh, what when you just like you know passively holding a token, um, you might be you know uh, diluted because of inflation in the underlying protocol and things of that nature. So the way I look at journalized mining is is a very and it's in the in the word um, it is a very general approach of active participation in networks, mm-hmm. and the reason why we use the word mining is I think it's it's kind of an easy way to understand that you know being on the supply side of some of these uh, uh, decentralized networks is a way to gain value, right? And I think um, you know Bitmain doing a billion dollar uh, IPO is, is kind of evidence of, of that kind of value accrual in a sense, right? So, um, and I actually wanted to touch upon a point that you mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago around um, around needing a token for generalized mining. I actually disagree, right? So the way at least uh, here at CoinFund and, and myself look at, like at generalized mining is that it's more of an opportunity around um, being able to do service provision to a certain decentralized network. And like I said, it can be very general. Um, so I think the reason why most people equate, you know, proof of stake or, or delegate or liquid proof of stake or staking economics with generalized mining is that it's kind of the first iteration of, you know, a generalized mining strategy. And the truth is that, you know, a lot of the setup that's required to do generalized mining strategies look very much like, you know, setting up staking services. So, you know, just security, uh, tax operations, 
um, you know, having the necessary software and, and proprietary algorithms that, that you might want um, and building a community. I think a lot of these staking as a service companies are, are sort of spinning that out. But the way that we look at it is that generalized mining is way bigger. And staking is, is just kind of like the first iteration of that. So for example, um, so MakerDAO, right? MakerDAO uh, stablecoin system. Um, they, if you're familiar with how they actually keep the token stable is, you know, they have a bunch of collateralized debt positions in the MakerDAO economy. And then there is a certain like threshold that makes that uh, collateral position risky, right? And that usually means the underlying, the price of the underlying collateral is, uh, you know, approaching the liquidation price. And so in order to cover the uh, deficit that was created by that collateral position, what the system actually does is that they, um, you know, put up for auction actually some of the underlying collateral, and you know, people in the system can actually bid to buy that collateral usually at a discount, or else they would just buy it at market price. And you know, they, basically, the system will take those proceeds and then be able to cover up any of the debt that was created by that CDP, right? So in that sense, like that's actually an opportunity to be able to buy underlying collateral assets at a discount. And that's actually a way to generate returns, but there's actually no, you know, it's, it's not represented by any like one single token, right? That's more of an understanding of the underlying economic system. And, you know, so I think, uh, as, so MakerDAO is, is, um, you know, they're launching multi-collateral and they're basically, uh, providing an update, uh, to the type of, um, auction system and which they're calling keepers. And, you know, we, we intend to participate in that as well as, as a fund, but that's kind of an example of, of something that is not proof of stake, but is, I consider kind of like in the domain of generalized mining. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's cool. I mean, proof of stake or delegated proof of stake alone, right? It's already hard to wrap one's head around, you know, what, what roles uh, miners or stakers would take, you know, in generalized mining. But that's, that's very interesting what you brought up there. So, so basically, um, The way I understand it, or the way I understood always what, what you and Jake Brookman, you know, meant with generalized mining was that you have to somehow get involved in the network to combat the dilution of the tokens that you hold. And unless you get involved, you won't be able to realize the full value of, of the tokens that the network can provide. Um, I mean, is that correct? Yeah, I think that's... Um I think that's that's definitely a great way to, to explain it. It's I like the basic we, definition, generalized mining 101. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other way I like to explain it is, um, and this, this is kind of the way that, that I think uh, CoinFund has, has kind of taken the approach of is, you know, at the end of the day, these are all still investment decisions, right? Um, you know, we'll, I don't think it's in our interest to support networks that we don't have a strong investment thesis around, right? And so, you know, I more, I like to look kind of uh, at generalized mining as more of an extension of uh, sort of the, the core investment strategy in terms of, you know, there are projects out there, uh, you know, that we support because we think they're building really cool things. Um, and, you know, some of these networks, uh, especially in the early days, are going to need aligned stakeholders. Um, you know, so in a proof of stake system, it'll be like uh, the quote unquote miners or validators of that system. Um, or, or in MakerDAO, it might be the people that, uh, you know, keep the price stable. And, you know, if, if you can, you know, as a fund, um, 
you know, are already going to be going long on these assets, it kind of makes sense to also, you know, stake on these networks to get some of the rewards, but also to make sure that, you know, you are, you know, participating day to day um, and kind of understanding what's happening within the ecosystem. Right. And I think I was actually listening to a previous episode of yours that you had with uh, uh, one of uh, our, our coworkers, uh, Alex Bulkin, um, which was basically saying that, you know, crypto assets are really interesting because um, holding the actual asset makes you, by definition, uh, you know, have to understand the underlying technology and actual interaction of like how this asset uh, is used with a certain product. Right. So, you know, even when you, uh, you know, I, I think that the hump is, is a little bit tough for kind of mainstream folk, but, you know, I think most of the aha moments that I get when I show my friends who are not in crypto is, you know, I'll, I'll send in some ETH uh, and then I'll, I'll kind of like open meta, uh, sorry, I'll open a radar relay for them. And then, you know, they'll actually, you know, do like a small uh, trade on, on the decentralized exchange. And then at that moment, they realize like, okay, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm more comfortable uh, with like how Ether is used within this ecosystem um, and, you know, how, you know, actually going through the process of paying for transactions um, kind of brings you closer to understanding, you know, what is this asset? How is it being used? Um, and then, you know, then they become more interested in like, okay, this is a decentralized exchange product within Ethereum. What are the other DEXs in Ethereum? And then, you know, they go down the proverbial rabbit hole. As, as many people in crypto go. Right. And so, yeah. And I, th- and I think that's, that's what you tend to see is that, you know, investors uh, or, or mo- a lot of the excitement, especially when, when I first got into the space was, you know, it was very easy. And I was a graduate student at the time, you know, it was very easy for me uh, to buy these assets. But also once I bought these assets, you know, I became way more ingrained into, you know, the happenings of the community. What were the new projects that were going on? Um, you know, the different types of standards uh, within you know, certain ecosystems. And so I think, um, you know, it's already kind of happened at the retail level um, or is, is beginning to happen at the retail level, especially kind of in the early days. And uh, basically, I look at generalized mining as an institutionalized form of that strategy. Um, and it's more around being a very kind of smart investor uh, and, you know, having a very deep understanding of, of the products and the economic systems in which you're, you're actually supporting. Yeah. So it's almost a research strategy. Exactly. And, and, and uh, sort of the last point is, you know, even games like uh, FOMO 3D, if you're familiar with it. So FOMO 3D very, very, um, you know, briefly was, uh, it was basically this game that was built on Ethereum. Um, and it was kind of like a, like a Ponzi scheme lottery game where um, there is like a timer and if you wanted to, uh, basically the game was uh, if you held a certain key when the timer um, uh, was expired, you would have, you would basically have like the winning lottery ticket to all the underlying uh, pool of ether that was sent into that uh, pool. And the thing is that you have to buy uh, keys with ether. And the thing is that there's only ever going to be one winner and so you're, you're basically betting on the fact that other people are not going to buy the key uh, after you, right? So it was this like big game and it was like, you know, clearly a Ponzi scheme. Um, but, you know, it was one of the you know, most viral apps actually of Ethereum in the second half of 2018. Austrian economics at its best. 
but you know, uh, if you actually look at the way the person that won FOMO 3D, um, and I won't go too deep into it, there's some, there's some good research that was done, but basically the person clogged uh, the Ethereum network and specifically the blocks uh, that contained transactions from the FOMO 3D contract, right? And so, you know, if you actually look at how the person won it, it was a person that really deeply understood, you know, how that contract was, uh, was uh, committing transactions but also a deep understanding of how, you know, Ethereum actually mines blocks, right? And so I kind of look at that and I like to say, you know, that like winning FOMO 3D or trying to hack that FOMO 3D, uh, like winning that game is kind of also in the domain of generalized mining, right? Because that is a kind of a way to generate, uh, you know, extra returns. And there is no token, there is no token part or anything, right? It's more, that it's a, more comes from a deep understanding of, uh, you know, that game and the, the game theory, the technology. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand. Basically, you want um, proprietary knowledge that you that you gain by being deeply involved in the network. But mm. what you just described is not necessarily supporting the network, right? Making it more sustainable. <laughs> it's exactly. more like exploiting the things that you found out. So it may be that, you know, by by doing what, what this guy did, you know, by, by doing this trick or, or whatever tactics he used, um, he may have, you know, ruined the reputation of uh, of of the underlying blockchain, which in this case, may, you know, was was Ethereum. So you know, it was a, a small risk, right, that that would happen. But the way I under, always understood generalized mining was that you actually want to see the network succeed, right, beyond just financial gains in the short term, but you want long term adoption. You want a stronger network. So basically, you say, good, I'm operating at at a loss or at zero profit at the very beginning, but in the long run. If I support the network with my generalized mining activities, it will see more value stream into the network. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, there's definitely like a loss loss leading um, aspect of, of generalized mining, especially for early early networks that uh, may not have uh, you know kind of uh, price or market formation behind those assets currently. But you know you do believe in in that in that network long term. Um, but I'm actually glad you brought this up. Um, this idea of good money versus bad money, mm, right? Point. I yep. think one of the things that we have not really seen yet, but is definitely going to be an issue um, as you know, some of these uh, sort of capital-based uh, security models and the networks that they support uh, grow into maturity is, you know, this idea of being able to kind of take down a network, right? So let's say, you know, you support this one network and, and you're trying to, you know, kind of attack another network. Um, you know, can you actually structure because these are all crypto assets at the end of the day, can you structure some sort of derivative where there is a large payout uh, for a certain network to be actually attacked and uh, for that you know, underlying crypto asset to, to really fall down in price? And so it becomes really uh, kind of sticky because in proof of stake systems, security is directly correlated to the price of the asset, right? And so um, I don't know. I, I think this is uh, one of those things that, you know, a lot of people are asked, like, how, how are derivatives kind of an attack surface? And, you know, it, what is uh, kind of the, the possibility or feasibility of bad money, right, in the, in the context of generalized mining? And I don't think anybody has a good answer yet, right, uh, because we're still in the early stages of these networks. But I think over time, what we're going to see is, you know, definitely sort of, you know, actors that are, are trying to, you know, if you want to call them good money or bad money, uh, you know, 
want to kind of profit off of um, you know things in the network that may or may not be beneficial. And I think uh, sort of the answer to that, or at least the answer that I've I've kind of uh, been thinking in my mind is eventually the network uh, through some sort of governance is going to have to you know fight off uh, that sort of bad money uh, derivative uh, kind of attack. And, you know they'll. That that's a question more around how how well can you kind of communicate to the community that this is happening? Um, you know, is is this uh, based on on chain evidence or off chain evidence, um, and you know things of that nature? But I think uh, we're still maybe like a year or, or two years away from that uh, being really kind of a, a material uh, risk threat. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. This episode has support from my very own The Blockchain and Us newsletter. Get an email from me every two weeks with a very short summary of new podcast episodes so you can immediately pick those interviews you'd like to listen to. To stay up to date, just visit www.theblockchainandus.com and sign up today. Um, I want to ask, with CoinFund, right? Obviously, you're a fund. You're primarily an investor. But let's say a fund is not interested in generalized mining, do you think they would have a disadvantage, you know, in comparison to those funds that, that do? Yeah, short answer is uh, yes, right. Um, I think right now, uh, you know, I think that's advantageous uh, to, you know, have a generalized mining strategy. I think over time it has to become the status quo. Because, you know, let's say there is a fund uh, that is going along on a certain asset, uh, let's call it Ether. And then, you know, there's a fund that has a generalized mining strategy that's actually been staking Ether. You know, let's assume, uh, you know, uh, Ethereum moves to proof of stake. Um, you know, and I don't know, let's say the underlying price of the asset has some return. Uh, but the fund that was actually staking that Ether um, has compounding uh, returns on top of that, right? Because they're getting the inflationary reward. So just from a returns perspective, um, you know, and staking is kind of like the, the most basic example of that, um, you know, you can already outperform other funds that are just taking specifically sort of price risk. This is the thing is I don't think funds realize yet that, um, that a lot of value is going to end up going to these types of, of, of projects. But also like, uh, I think uh, projects that we've talked to recently is, you know, a lot of them are using some form of staking economics. And the truth is that, you know, they want their early stage supporters and their early stage investors to be aligned, right? So what they'll do actually nowadays, um, and, and I've, I've noticed this among kind of like the really high quality projects is, you know, they actually want investors that could stake assets uh, on their, on their uh, network, especially in early stages. And because of regulation, you know, a lot of these assets are going to be locked up for a year at least. And so it actually makes sense for that year while it's locked to be staking it as a fund. And so, you know, not only is it kind of like at the at the fund level, but also for projects that are looking for investors, um, we've, we've gotten feedback that, you know, there are projects that actually uh, will choose to have investors uh, in their round that can actually be accretive to them and, uh, you know, provide staking services to actually uh, support that network long term. And during the ICO craze is that you had all these funds, um, you know, that would invest and basically be, you know, just like flip, flip those assets, right? And, and just uh, um, like dump it, pump and dump those tokens into the market. Whereas, you know, if, we're, if we, you know, are trying to actually build decentralized networks at scale, 
um, it would make sense that staking is basically skin in the game uh, for funds to actually put their money where their mouth is uh, to you know support these networks. No, it's it's a very good point, and I see I see that point from the perspective of. Um, you know, a, a founder of a project. Of course, I would also want an investor like this. But, you know, in reality, of course, you know, if, if you look at a hedge fund, at a Wall Street hedge fund, how they operated in the past, that's exactly what they didn't want. They didn't want any skin in the game. And they wanted to be able to, to you know, trade in and out of investments without, you know, much cost. And, and so what what you're saying there, right, if funds will have to have a generalized mining strategy for for their investments or for bulk of their investments that will totally change the way they operate yeah no i totally agree so funds will will have to be more like technology companies right they will have to be more like startups like like tech firms instead of you know exactly. purely like wall street like hedge funds yes totally agree and um you know there was actually a really great blog post um by by coinbase And it was basically, um, the topic was, is Coinbase a finance company or is it a technology company? All right. And, you know, I think you can kind of extend that to crypto funds because, you know, uh, that we, we do live kind of on the capital side of, of these markets. Um, and, you know, the truth with crypto and the beauty of crypto is that it, it's basically a native integration of, um, you know, capital and technology in, in a way that I think we haven't really sort of experienced before. And so as a, as a fund, not only are you allocating capital, you're allocating, you know, your belief in technology and your expertise in, in underlying economic systems as well. And, um, yeah, I, I would hope that, you know, a lot of, you know, investors that are, you know, you know, the truth is like, if you're investing in crypto, you're, you're investing in early stage things. And, uh, one of the best ways, uh, especially in the early stages of a network is to have alignment of your different stakeholders. And I think one of the, I think one of the good things uh, that are going to come out of, you know, sort of these, uh, the proliferation of staking networks is, you know, a better alignment of those types of uh, stakeholders. Um, but th I guess uh, the other point that I want to make uh, very briefly is, you know, proof of stake is a very generic term, right? And the implementation is going to be very different depending on the system. And so as a fund, uh, you know, you also have to do that research internally about which networks actually make sense and what type of risk that you actually want to take. And, you know, I think you kind of touched upon this where, you know, it, it, it sounds expensive for a fund to actually roll out a generalized mining strategy. Um, and it's true, right? Because there's all sorts of operational nightmares that come with uh, a generalized mining initiative. Um, you know, I think the easiest one to mention is probably tax. Right. So let's say you get um, you stake your assets and you get some some rewards of the inflation. Um, you know, how are you considering that from a tax perspective? Right. Is It's income most of the time. Right. Yeah. That's exactly, exactly what the fund doesn't want exactly. or cannot exactly. have. Also, some funds are not allowed to, you know, book any income. Exactly. And and there's a, and, you know, there's I think the tax classification of crypto is, is still uh, can can definitely improve, especially in the U.S. But, you know, do we tax uh How do we look at taxing, you know, um, in inflation rewards and proof of stake systems, especially if they're non-transferable, right? Do we we tax them almost like stock options that vest over time, right? Because so so th there's a lot of questions, and also operationally, you know, what one thing with staking is that there is a slashing component, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, you you are taking that risk if you if you want to, uh, especially for a network that has very strict uh, slashing requirements. Um, 
you know, I think LPs, uh, when they look at investments that lose in price, they, they kind of understand that. But I don't think they're ever used to seeing, you know, you actually losing the underlying asset. Um, you know, and it's not because of a result of security. It's because of, you know, you, you behaved wrongly or you didn't participate actively enough on a certain network. And so there's also that issue too, right? So yeah, exactly. there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of education that has to be going around. Uh, cause it is, it is a huge, uh, there's a lot of operational questions that funds have to ask. Um, and I think that's kind of the reason why, uh, you know, it's, it, it might take a little bit longer for, for other funds to do it, but um, I, I kind of see that as kind of our, our medium-term advantage here at CoinFund because uh, we've been asking those questions uh, for a while and uh, we've, we've uh, you know, done, done a lot of research uh, to, to service economies in this way. Mm -hmm. Cool. Have you seen a difference in inflows, you know, since you started writing about generalized mining and since you, you know, adopted that as part of your strategy? Well, I think um, it's it's more. I mean, I think what we're seeing now is, in general, especially in a bear market where you know the actual prices on these underlying assets are you know relatively fat, flat at least for the you know the previous uh, the past few months. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as a fund, like you have to also generate uh, returns in other ways, right? And also, you know, like I said, to, to the point about uh, projects that are actually want aligned investors, um, you know, we've, we've definitely gotten that feedback and have been able to, uh, you know, uh, invest in projects that uh, because we kind of fit that profile of the investor that they like. Um, and also, I think, um, and, and I believe Jake wrote a blog post around this, uh, but for live peer. Um, so live peer was a case study that we did, um, and it's kind of, uh, it's, it's an early case study around generalized mining where we were actually able to access, uh, you know, live peer tokens through their Merkle mine process, um, which was entirely, you know, uh, done via, uh, sort of, a, a technology route. And it, it wasn't kind of just like a typical investor round where they sold tokens for money, um, you know, to investors. Mm -hmm. What and did you so, have to do to, to, uh, to qualify for that? Yeah. So, so basically, um, specifically with the Merkle mine process, uh, it was a way for, it was a way to basically do distribution of LPT to people that actually wanted it. Right. So it was almost like a reverse airdrop. So, you know, the way it works is like, if you had, um, a Ethereum address at a certain block height with a certain amount of ETH, so I think it was like if you had anything above 0.1 ether, you could actually submit a Merkle proof, uh, which shows that you know you have that ETH at a certain block height at the uh, of your address, and you could actually submit that to the uh, Live Peer uh, smart contract, and that smart contract would mint you uh, I think 2.4 LPT, right? And so what happened is uh, you know regular users were able to do that. But eventually, uh, uh, the LivePeer team opened it up so that you could actually uh, Merkle mine other LivePeer addresses. So it's it would be like, you know, I see there are these number of addresses that, this, that have this amount of ETH. Um, I can actually submit Merkle proofs on behalf of them, and I can actually get a cut of the LPT that they receive. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, and what did that do for the network? Well, you know. It, it first of all it increased uh, distribution uh, to people uh, that may or may not have LPT before, um, but also uh, they were launching, I believe, their uh, like they, they're they're in sort of the early stages of, of actually uh, launching the Life Peer Economics. So it was a way for people to you know actually get get exposure to LPT, 
and then also stake it um, on the LPT uh, uh, front end, uh, which is explorer.livepeer.org. So, um, you know, it, it actually brought a lot more exposure to LPT. Um, I believe uh, at their last community call, they were saying, um, you know, a couple of months ago, uh, they would have to explain LivePeer to people. But now uh, just the general exposure and general understanding of what LivePeer is has increased exponentially. Right. So um, and I think that that's also kind of a case study where um, it was a way to get access uh, to LPT tokens without necessarily, uh, you know, having to participate in like a sort of venture round. Um, and you could actually, you know, gain gain. Um, uh, ex- exposure to that network. Interesting. You know, one one argument I often have with people is, where is the line between giving incentives in a decentralized protocol to people and early adopters to support it and some kind of central planning, mm-hmm. you know, where an all-knowing uh, planner doles out, you know, parts for people to play um to, to make sure that the economy works. I mean, to, because I think this is quite a, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if this were the case, this would be a stark contrast to the promise of, of what many blockchain projects are making, you know, which is that they're creating a decentralized market-driven economy. Mm-hmm. So what's your view on this? Yeah, no, that's, so that's a great point. Um, I think the way that I would describe that is, you know, there are different, there, there are different life cycles to decentralized networks. Um, and I still think we're so in the early days. Um, and the truth is that, you know, these are companies that look like startups that are trying to create decentralized networks, right? Um, so, you know, this, there's a live peer team, you know, they, they have a, a, you know, a team of, um, I forget how large the team is now, but, you know, that's, it's a team of people, um, you know, and I would say in general, the people, uh, it, it, you know, it's relatively centralized today. But basically, the hope is that over time that it, it becomes decentralized um, and there are more different types of uh, participants in the network. And also, I, I really like the fact that you brought up this point of who knows what's actually best for the network, right? So, you know, I often look at, um, I remember, especially with the whole SegWit2x debate that was happening in the Bitcoin community, um, you know, there are a lot of it basically came down to people that were saying no, no to two X, um, you know, who were, you know, actual Bitcoin core devs and, and people that uh, didn't want sort of outside influence. And then you had, you know, the exchanges like Coinbase that I were actually saying, no, we should uh, increase the block size uh, to two X. And, you know, history showed that actually, um, you know, it, they never shifted to two X, but it kind of uh, in hindsight was very important for Bitcoin because it showed that Bitcoin was really kind of an immutable uh, technology, right? Where, uh, you know, a lot of it wasn't going to budge based on the kind of extra, uh, sorry, external influence of, you know, um, you know, companies like, uh, you know, uh, relatively bigger companies. And in that case, you know, I don't know whether or not Leo Coinbase was correct or wrong in that case, but, you know, you could say that, um, you know, maybe they didn't, uh, understand, you know, the company in that case, uh, you know, maybe didn't understand what was going to be uh, the long term. Uh, yeah, what was going to be the actual appropriate thing for that? And this is really interesting because I think, um, philosophically speaking, a lot of like blockchain services or products, some believe should be public goods, right? And if you actually consider uh, some of the products that are being built on blockchain and the margins that they're taking, 
Um, some of them are actually cre- are are you know obviously less efficient than a lot of centralized products. And so, for example, in MakerDAO, there is around a 2.5, I believe, percent uh, fee that you have to pay uh, to essentially uh, take out a loan. And you know that might be that might be cheaper for for some systems, and that that might be more expensive for you know other products. But you know, I think I think over time, what's going to have to happen is you know when there's more competition and when there's uh, you know more competing products, um, it's going to kind of have to come down to the community whether or not they want to operate at cost, right? And that that is actually a really really interesting point because um, I mean I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think we're still kind of in the early stages. We're still bootstrapping these networks, and we're trying to get people to come to the table. But eventually, this is a question that you know people around uh, that are supporting that economy are going to have to ask themselves. And I think over t- uh, and it becomes really interesting because you know we're talking about products, but you know even with tokens, right? Like, how is the functionality of a token going to change over time? I think like so so Binance Coin BNB actually started off as a discount token. But Binance, uh, you know, realized they wanted to give more value back to their users, and they actually incorporated this, uh, you know, buy and burn mechanism, where essentially holding BNB, uh, you know, gave you kind of uh, rights uh, to the underlying equity of Binance, or at least the profits of Binance. Right. And so that's interesting because that was actually a way in which the uh, the dimension of that crypto asset actually changed. Right. Um, and introduce a new angle. But the thing is, it was done by a centralized company, uh, by Binance. And it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, over time, if these crypto assets do change in behavior as the network changes and grows and requires, uh, you know, new types of dimensions, um, you know, how robust and how kind of agile will the community be in being able to determine uh, the changes to that asset, right? And that's that's the question I think uh, a lot of people... Uh, it's going to be a bigger issue, I think, as as these networks begin to kind of hit, uh, uh, you know, high growth and and you know, bring in a lot more participants and a lot more uh, obviously demand and and uh, usage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What you said before, I actually disagree with the narrative of um, many of the blockchain projects being public goods. I, I think that is that may be a story that they're telling, but in effect, I think what's happening is that previously. Unpriced assets can now have a price. Mm-hmm. And you can now price markets that previously you just couldn't because it, there were no economics to do so. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for example, look at air, look at water. I think everybody would pay like a little bit to be sure that they have clean water. You wouldn't uh, want to pay like peak pricing, like an Uber, where all of a sudden it costs $100 for a cab ride that usually costs like $15. But, but if you said, look, we can now have like micro payments that ensure that these public goods will function, I think many, many people would be happy to pay them, especially if they're small enough. And I think it's just a question of, of pricing these unpriced assets. Yeah, no, totally agree. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you definitely hit the point well there. Uh, yeah, and and I agree. It's like, it's you know, in, in the Uber case, right? You know, we've we've heard of like uh, decentralized Uber, you know, uh, for for a very long time. But you know, in that case, how how does that community actually come up uh, and determine the type of pricing, um, uh, you know, over time as as that you know grows and scale? And uh, you know, there's there's definitely a governance component to it. 
Um, and I think, uh, you know, we're still going to, there, there's going to be a lot of experimentation on that front, but, you know, I think going forward, especially as a fund, um, you know, we, different networks are going to grow at different rates. And I think one of the great things about, you know, sort of generalized mining is that, you know, you get to kind of be really at like the front row seat of how these networks are going to change over time. And, you know, what are the type of dynamics and how replicable are those trends across different networks? And um, I think it's, it's, it's just the beginning. And so hmm. uh, I do agree, though. I, I, uh, I, I like how you describe that. Um, Ryan, we're almost out of time. I mean, I just have a few more questions. Mm -hmm. um, what are you learning at the moment? Oh, wow. Um, I'm learning to be a little bit more patient. Um, <laughs> Aren't we all learning that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think uh, it's it's more around, you know, especially in this space, uh, so many things change. Um, and a lot of assumptions that you might have held uh, because everything is so connected, uh, you know, just the smallest change in something that happens can, can kind of affect your thinking of, of many different lines. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think it's just being, pa being able to stay patient with, with how you approach things, um, you know, and even if a lot of uh, sort of things are changing, uh, that may affect that may have affected your original thinking. It's kind of around okay, uh, you know, how high conviction do I have uh, still in this uh, specific idea, and how patient am I going to be with this idea as well, right? And so I think, um, you know, I'm learning learning that. Uh, the second thing is I'm I'm learning how important uh, the uh, kind of the life cycle, uh, understanding kind of like where the life cycle of these assets are. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I think the point that you said about, you know, pricing unpriced assets is kind of the reason why, you know, trying to come up, trying to justify a certain price. And this was actually related to our conversation around valuation of certain crypto assets can be so difficult at times. Right. It's like, because who can actually say that Ether is worth, uh, you know, $21 billion in, in, the, in the coin market cap. Right. Mm, yeah. Um, and you know, over time, it, it's kind of around, it's kind of around, you know, also there are, uh, the other thing I'm learning is the role of centralized companies that are going to be playing in this, in this space going forward. Um, you know, where, you know, the companies like Coinbase and Coinlist and, and Circle, um, and, you know, as, as the space, which was, you know, mainly in the digital realm starts to enter, you know, the actual world, um, you know, what type of interactions are going to come and what are, where are kind of the friction points and the pressure points that are going to come out of that? And how do, how does that change over time as these networks, uh, which are mostly in the early stages begin to really mature and grow? Right. And so I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you heard this week about the news of Ether Delta. Um, you know, I don't think a lot of people were necessarily surprised at you know, kind of the SEC's position, but it kind of sparked all sorts of very interesting questions around, you know, can, you know, actual developers that uh, create these contracts be held liable, right? And um, I think that's, uh, I don't know, it's it's interesting. Um, and I I don't have necessarily a good answer. And maybe that's, yeah, the last, that's the last thing is uh, I don't have a lot of answers. Uh, 
I can only ask, I can, the best I can do is maybe ask the right questions or the types of questions that can eventually lead to, uh, some sort of insight. Uh, but you know, I, it's kind of hard for me to, you know, very stick steadfast to one type of belief because the, the, the space is always changing. And so just always being open as well. Absolutely. More research is necessary. <laughs> um, Ryan, what scares you about the future? Oh man. Um, I'm scared of what's the role of, you know, one of the like big arguments for pro crypto is the fact that people are, you know, coming to distrust institutions a lot. Right. And uh, not only is there a kind of a distrust from people into the countries that they live in, um, but also into, you know, the systems of belief that they had held for so long. Not only that, there's distrust between countries as well, right? So, you know, th there seems to be in the air at least a lot of, uh, you know, tensions between alliances between, between different countries as well. Um, and also, you know, having grown up in Korea, uh, you know, a large part of like uh, the Korean sort of political system is that it, it had its allegiance to America for the longest time. Um, but economically speaking now, a lot of that is uh, coming into conflict with the type of trade that Korea can do with China. Right. And so, you know, people like to say, oh, crypto will succeed because, uh, you know, the, the political nation states and their role of like money systems is going to fail. Well, that's not necessarily like a, <laughs> you know, a good thing, right? Like, yeah, I mean, exactly. We're sacrificing a lot of stability to get that. And so, um, you know, I, I still do believe that's, that's kind of the direction that we are heading in, but uh, I don't know. There's going to be a lot of pain felt uh, by different people. Um, and I'm also scared, kind of broadly related to that, um, kind of like the technology evangelism of crypto. I think people just assume that, uh, you know, if crypto succeeds, the world will, uh, you know, find world peace or something. But I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. And, you know, the truth is a lot of the capital formation and the, um, you know, the people that got rich uh, in crypto, um, you know, if they did surveys, it's like most of them are like, you know, young 20-year-old, you know, males, uh, like in their 20s, uh, you know, usually engineering types. And so the other thing is like, I'm scared that maybe, uh, you know, the use, the use of crypto, um, which was intended to be more so around, um, you know, being able to create really great systems, especially for kind of developing economies uh, that hadn't developed those yet. Um, I wonder if, if we're kind of just trending down the wrong path um, and, and how much capital can actually ruin uh, a lot of this industry yeah. and, the, and the incentives behind it. Hmm. Yeah, good point. What, what can be done you know, about this that we're actually not treading down the wrong path? I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer. Um, I think what happens is... I think the second that you can kind of get like actual usage and adoption of these products, um, I think that's when we're going to see, uh, you know, at least uh, people that are going to value those types of products may or may not be more skewed towards places that don't already have alternative solutions. Right. So one of the arguments for Bitcoin is like, oh, you know, the, you know, for most people, uh, let's say in like the Western hemisphere, uh, like in Europe and America, um, you know, Bitcoin is kind of just like uh, an investment on the side that people have, 
Whereas, you know, people maybe in developing countries or people uh, or in countries that have very strict capital controls, Bitcoin is actually a way for them to store their wealth, um, you know, and, uh, you know, find kind of hedge against the, uh, the national currency of their system. And so I think it's one of those things where, you know, you know Bitcoin adoption is, is one conversation, but just adoption of uh, different types of uh, crypto assets and how much efficiency they unlock. You know, can you actually get this adopted in places where this is, you know, kind of the only thing that they know and is actually the most kind of efficient iteration of what they would have known? Right. And so that's um, that that would be my hope. Um, but I think, to be fair, we're still in the early days of all this stuff. Um, let's let's kind of eke out the uh, the complexities of the technology and eke out the complexities of um, you know, the actual user experience, and uh, hopefully we can get more adoption. Um, because at the end of the day, crypto products are global products, right? Um, and yeah, I would I would hope that that continues, um, and we actually start to get more adoption, uh, kind of outside of, I guess, uh, more and more advanced uh, uh, economies mm -hmm. of the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I hope that too. Um, Ryan, where can people find you? Uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter um, at uh, Ryan. Um, I I don't really uh, tweet that much. I mostly retweet, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and you know I occasionally write on the uh, CoinFund blog. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm around. I'm relatively open. Um, but you know, I think one thing lately I've been slacking on is is writing. So I'll I'll be, I'll be making sure to do that uh, over the next a few months. Okay, cool, fantastic. Looking forward to it, Ryan. This was great, and I really appreciate your taking time. Awesome, thank you, Mano. Thanks so much for joining us today. More info on our guests and our sponsors is in the show notes of this episode and on the podcast website theblockchainandus.com. To help people find this podcast, it's important that you download, subscribe, and give it a top rating and review on iTunes or on the podcast platform of your choice. I'm Manuel Staggers, and I thank you very much for listening.